If I were titling this lesson, I would entitle it, Just a Housewife. <laughs> Who are you and what do you do? I'm just a housewife. You mean you're not a nuclear scientist? You mean you're not the coach of the Philadelphia Eagles? You're not a world-famed brain surgeon? Just a housewife. Just a housewife. My, what a terribly destructive and demeaning term to use about yourself or anybody else. Terrible. And here you have in this Bible, and back there in the Old Testament, a woman who was just a housewife. But because, as, as most of the women were in her day, but because of her faith, her commitment, her dedication, her sensitivity, her compassion, her persistence, saw some incredible things happen in her lives, in her life, and the lives of people she loved. Somebody that's just a housewife can know more than just fulfillment in a traditional role. She can know power. She can know spiritual energy. She can know victories in and through her life and in the lives of people she loves and prays for and cares about. This is an incredible story. Elisha was the successor to Elijah. Got to move along here. But Elijah was the uh, hermit-like preacher of the Old Testament, calling fire down on Mount Carmel on the prophets of Baal, engaged in a war with Ahab and Jezebel. He uh, was a man of mystery. He would just show up suddenly on the spot, surprisingly. Unpredictable. He was a man of isolation. Spent a lot of time alone. Now his successor was Elisha. E-L-I-S-H-A. Not E-L-I-J-A-H. Elijah the first. And then his successor, Elisha. Now Elisha was a different kind of person. He was more a person of the people. He was uh, more gregarious. He started schools of prophets, for example. He worked with younger believers and prophets, teaching them and training them. Elijah more the prophet, Elisha more the pastor. In terms of primary thrust and primary emphasis. In a way, in a way, to a degree, they, they serve something. Uh, uh, John the Baptist and Jesus serve as something of a, of a comparison to Elijah and Elisha. John the Baptist, this strange, mysterious man living out there in the deserts, calling down thunder and fire and brimstone on folks. And Jesus, the man with the people. The man for others. More approachable. Here is a woman in Shunem, S-H-U-N-E-M, a town in Israel. 
And uh, let me begin reading in the 8th verse of the 4th chapter of 2 Kings. Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman. The King James translates that wealthy woman. This is the revised New King James Version, which is a very good translation, incidentally, I think. It translates the word notable. She may have been wealthy. It may have been the wealth of money, or it may have been the wealth of influence, or it may have been both. The word does not restrict the application. A notable woman is a good translation of it. And she constrained him to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, that he turned in there to eat some food. Now, Elisha had been a very prominent man. And when he felt God calling him into this role of the prophet, this preacher, this teacher, he left this very lucrative income that was his as a farmer and began to do this. And as the Lord teaches us, the Lord himself and the apostle Paul echoes that the laborer is worthy of his hire they're to be fed they're to be taken care of they're to be ministered to physically as they minister to others spiritually so it was when he passed by he turned in there to eat some food and she said to her husband look now I know that he is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. So it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. This is known as the prophet's chamber. Now, a lot of us grew up in the era when that was a very, under, uh, very oft-used term. People in the church, how many of that terms familiar to, to you? Prophet chamber. I see your hand. <laughs> okay. <laughs> George Stewart and Clyde Childers and I, two pastors, we're the only ones that know that. But that's because we've stayed in those. Prophet's chamber, that's unfortunate that a term like that slips out of our Christian vocabulary. That is, those are people who have homes that they open to the pastor, to the preacher, to the evangelist when he came to town to preach. A lot of times... Uh, it was only a quarter-time church or a half-time church. They only met every other Sunday or every fourth Sunday. Well, it was some church. When you were in college, you got a full-time church that met every Sunday. Well, those churches were not large. They were rural churches largely, as you can imagine. And they didn't have uh, hotels and motels and places like that to stay, and so you'd stay with somebody. Usually, someone had a nice home, and you'd stay in that home, and they would designate the room where the preacher always stayed as the prophet's chamber. Now, does that bring back any memories to any of you? Doesn't do it, huh? Okay. That's what you get for eating okra. Boy, it just blots out your mind. It drives you crazy. Mm. I stayed in the prophet's chamber down at Carrizo Springs in a lovely ranch home down there. They had a room where I... Where I stayed, did the same thing over at Yoakum. Well, you can't find any place anywhere in the country better than those prophets' chambers. And uh, marvelous, lovely home, fine people. 
Well, it, it's interesting that the initiative to do this was taken by the woman. Taken by the woman. Now, I want you to notice this is just a housewife at work. This just a housewife sees the need to minister to somebody. Husband didn't think of it. He paid for it. Every man to his work. But he would not have built it and paid for it if she hadn't been sensitive enough to see the need. Thank God for people who have the gift of giving money and thank God for people who have the gift of sensitivity to see where it can best be used to help other people. Be good for him to have a private room. We wouldn't we won't disturb him. He can come and go as he will. Uh, we will not disturb him. He will not disturb us. And it will give him a place out of which to minister. Marvelous gift. Now, let me continue reading. And it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite woman. When he called her, she stood before him, and he said to him, Say now to her. It's interesting how Elisha so often worked in relationship to this woman through Gehazi. Here she was standing there, but he said to Gehazi, now what you, this is very important later on because of some things that happened. Call the woman, he said to his servant, and then when she got there, he said, Now tell her this. Well, she's standing right there, but you tell her this. Look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. I am happy to be just a housewife. God has surely called me here to this work, to this place, to this man. He has as surely called me here as he called anyone to do anything. And I tell you, if you classify yourself as just a housewife, put a crown on it. If God has called you to that for you and for our world, there is no higher calling. God have mercy on the nation that minimizes the role of just a housewife, just a mother. No, I'm, I'm happy where I am. I don't need to get in the palace. I don't need to be in the commander's cabinet. I'm happy here. There are people that can do that. Wonderful. That's God's will for their life. But that's not God's will for my life. I dwell among my own people. Isn't that a great phrase? You can just teach on that all day Sunday. Well, not quite all day. All during the Sunday school time. I dwell among my own people. She was a contented woman. Gehazi, he said to them, well, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, about this time next year, 
you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord. Man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. And the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her. So the child grew. Now it happened that one day he went out to his father, to the reapers. And he said to his father, My head, my head. So he, the father, said to a servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him, and went out. Now, that is tragedy. My soul, that is tragedy to be sure. Dan and I were talking, coming back from the Gleason's home just to less than an hour ago. This has been trouble day. It's been tr in some ways, every day is trouble day to a degree when you minister to people and try to work with people, but some days it just seems more. And some days maybe you're more vulnerable to it and it bothers you more. You're more discouraged about other things. It all kind of tumbles in upon you. But boy, this, uh, this is real tragedy. And this is not just trouble here. This is tragedy. And there's, a, there's an under... There's a subliminal theme that is going on here, an undertow that is going on here too of even an indication of some even greater tragedy. You notice how unconcerned the father was? My head, my head. Can't imagine that father staying out there in the fields with his son about to die. Thank God for a woman like that if that happens to be an indication of the kind of man that lives in that house. Thank God for her. She's going it alone. Then she called her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. Now you talk about a busy day. A busy day has begun. It's already noon. Her son just died in her arms. It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, it is well. You're not supposed to travel on those days. Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. I mean, we're going to hit the road. So she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel, which is where Elijah had spent a great deal of his time, and Elisha also. And so it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, look, there is the Shunammite woman. Please run now to meet her. Here is Elisha telling Gehazi, go to meet her and say to her, is it well with you? It is, is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? He did. And she answered, it is well. She was not going to tell her problem to anybody else but Elisha. Now, this merely suggests an idea that I just want to place in your mind and your thought and you think about it. Some people talk too much to too many people about their problems. If you're going to talk about them, talk to someone that can help you, someone you trust, someone that is competent to respond in a way that will be redemptive and helpful. A lot of times people dissipate the energy and the help that is available to them because they talk too indiscriminately about their problems. 
And the more personal the problem, the more intimate the problem is a word that I would like to use to suggest even more intimate details of relationships should be very carefully guarded regarding discussion. This was a bold woman. She said, it's okay, it's all right, it's well. She brushed right past him. Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi, the servant, came near to push her away. But the man of God, Elisha, said, let her alone. For her soul is in deep distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Elisha seems to be registering something of a kind of backhanded complaint to God for not letting him know what was happening. But it, it sure helps me because there are people that think that the moment you go into the ministry, you're suddenly endowed with omniscience. You know everything about everybody and uh, where everybody is, and you don't need to call the church to say someone's in the hospital. You are a preacher. He tells you everything. No, he doesn't. And Elisha is here saying, Lord, why? The Lord's not told me either. And she said, did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? She's angry. It's okay. She's getting out of her heart and her spirit some, some questions that she'd had and some resentment that she had. But she was doing it to someone that understood her and what she was saying and what she was feeling. Then he said to Gehazi, get yourself ready. To take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. In other words, don't spend any time along the way talking to folks. You get right over there to the house and you put that staff on the boy's face. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And so he arose and followed her. So here's Gehazi. He's on his way ahead of them. Here's the Shunammite woman and Elisha coming along behind him. Now Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore he went back to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awakened. And when Elisha came into the house, there was a child lying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. He went up and he laid on the boy, put his hands on his hands, his face on his face, his mouth on his mouth, similar to what we would envision as uh, resuscitation. <coughs> put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. He stretched himself out on the child and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite woman. So he called her and when she came in to him, he said, Pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Isn't that an incredible story? There's so many things about this that... Uh, quickly mentioned. One, did this boy come back and tell of his, of his experience beyond life in the land of death? No, he didn't. And it's, I think it's important that I point out, I'm not disputing some things that people experience 
or believe they experience or books that have been written. But it is dangerous to accept as a matter of faith or creed something for which there is no example in the Scripture. The Bible is to be our rule for faith and practice. And in this case, as in every other case in the Bible, when someone comes back from death, not a one of them ever pulled back the curtain to tell people what it was like. No one. Now, that may happen, but it did not happen in the Scripture. And if there's no scriptural example for it, then there, that should at least order caution for us. Caution. I want to say just a word about uh, walking by faith and living by the Spirit and serving in the name of Christ. That's really the only way we can walk. The Bible says we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. You start home in a little while or get out there to your automobile, you're going to have to turn your lights on, but you can't see all the way home. If you sat here on the parking lot until you could see all the way home, you'd be here when the Lord comes back if you lasted that long. That couldn't happen. You get home by faith. You turn those lights on, you start the automobile, and then you start it moving. And you can't see all the way home. You can't even see part of the way home unless you live very near here. But those lights will be out there in front of your car a few feet. And when you get out there where the light was, you'll have a little more. And when you get where the light was, you'll have a little more and a little more. You'll really go home in steps of faith. Your sight is very limited. Not only driving your car tonight, but looking at the future, not one of us can see into the next five minutes, let alone into tomorrow. But you're making plans, aren't you? You already have some of those visions of hope and expectation and prayer and projection that we talked about last week as being the essence of prayer. You already have some of those for tomorrow and Tuesday, and the rest of the week, and the following week, and the next month, and next year, you're walking by faith. All God asks us to do is to have as much faith in Him as we do the lights of our automobile. Have as much faith in Him as we do ourselves and our own plans. To walk by faith in the Son of God. Who is the light? He is with us. Not to throw a floodlight upon all of the rest of our lives so that we see the beginning from the end, but become a lantern to our feet, a light to our path, where we'll be able to see just far enough to take that next step and to keep walking and to keep walking and to keep walking by faith. Living by the Spirit, living in the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice that word holy. 
not just filled with the Spirit. For the Spirit undirected by the character, the person, the example of Jesus Christ can be terrifyingly destructive. Holy Spirit, Hagios, holy. Now to the Jew, following the de- destruction of the temple, they developed what we know today as Judaism. It was not that kind of religion at that time, uh, before that, with the temple worship and the sacrificial system. But with the destruction of the temple in 586, 587 B.C., the Jews were taken away into captivity. Judaism as we know it and see it today began to develop without temple, without sacrifice. And it began to become extremely legalistic. It began to turn more in upon itself and emphasizing separation. And this attitude was what gave rise to what Jesus confronted in the New Testament known as Phariseeism. Not Judaism at its best, but Judaism without its temple, without its sacrifice. It became rigid and harsh and legalistic and withdrawing, turning in and feeding upon itself. Holy, the primary meaning of the word holy is not withdrawal, the primary meaning of the word holy is involvement with, motivated by the presence and the spirit and the love of God. It is as has been said and sung here tonight in losing yourself for others and in others' life, giving yourself to them. Holiness means wholeness. W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-A. The Holy Spirit comes to make us whole. Not to just pull us away, but to put us together. And in putting us together, use us as salt and light, permeating the atmosphere and the world around us. Holiness means wholeness. Holiness also means happiness. Read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, holiness means to be happy in the Lord, to rejoice in the Lord. The misinterpretation of that word has led to a lot of grief in people's lives and a tragic loss to our world because Christians have so withdrawn that they have failed to see that their primary impetus is to be forward involving themselves with one another in terms of ministry. I hear Christians often, (coughs) excuse me, I hear Christians often use the phrase with which I agree and which I endeavor to practice, which I believe. Do not misinterpret what I'm saying. They talk about getting into the Word. Terrific. Valuable. Indispensable. Essential to growth. But the Lord told us not only to get into the Word, but to get into the world. 
That's exactly where he sent us. To get into the Word for food, for encouragement, for reassurance, for direction, for guidance. To do what? Those things are not given for themselves alone. They are given to equip us for going where he has sent us. Into the world. We are to be in the finest biblical definition of the word, we are to be worldly Christians. That's the kind of holiness he is talking about. The kind of holiness that's like salt, that permeates the food. That's like light, it permeates the darkness. Holiness, wholeness, happiness, equipping us, strengthening us, blessing us, preparing us for what? Getting into the world. I read a definition of preachers the other day that intrigued me. It said, some preachers never get into the Word, some never get out. Some Christians get into the church, they never get out. Some people get into the faith, they never get out to others who are faithless and hopeless. There is to be this reoccurring rhythm in the life of the Christian. If we are living in the Spirit. And finally, serving in the Spirit. Serving in the name of Christ. I don't know who first said it, but when I heard it, it stuck. Jesus Christ is the only thing you get more of by giving him away. I like that. That's true. He is the only thing you get more of by giving him away. To give away service and love and compassion and concern, encouragement in his name, in his name, is the grandest calling, the highest calling, the noblest service anyone could ever perform. And here's another thought. Little kindnesses done out of concern for other people sometimes, sometimes have a way of bringing untold blessings. Little kindnesses done for people out of concern and love sometimes have a way of bringing back untold blessings. And in this, we underestimate the, quote, traditional roles. We underestimate the just a housewife. We sometimes picture them in ways that rob them of meaning and purpose. And that is tragic. We come to think of the role of homemaker as being a passive role. The Shunammite woman demonstrated there was nothing passive or unimportant about that kind of role. She was hospitable. Listen to these qualities. Did you just get from reading this? She was hospitable. She was contented. She was compassionate. She had faith in God and in Elisha. She had initiative. And she had persistence. What a housewife. May God increase her number. How you think?
I don't know how you pay expenses, but I know what your job is, to minister for Christ, serving in the name of the Lord. May we stand. And we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And as we do, I invite you to trust Christ as your Savior if you have never made that decision. To make that decision of commitment to His church as all the converts in the early church did. Isn't it interesting? Everywhere you find someone in the New Testament becoming a Christian, you find them identifying themselves with the church, with God's people. You do not find otherwise in the New Testament. That's our pattern and therefore our practice. We invite you to trust the Lord, to come into the life and fellowship of this church, to make the decision His Spirit is impressing you to make. We sing just as I am. That's how we come. That's how we invite you to come. Let's sing. You come.